This is the story of America's bloodiest prison, told by the people who lived it, both inside and outside its gates. The brutal history as you've never heard it before, from its origin as a slave plantation to its gradual growth as the bloodiest maximum security prison in America. To those outside its gates, it's known as Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. But to those who have spent time inside its gates, it's known as Bloody Angola. Come with us as we take you through the gates and give you a first-hand look at not only the stories of the stabbings, rapes, executions, escapes, and murders you won't find on any TV show or the internet, but also the murders, abductions, attacks, and hostage situations of the staff and their families, otherwise known by the convicts as free people. Bloody Angola is a comprehensive, no-hold-barred podcast that takes you on a journey through time from its inception as a slave plantation to America's largest maximum security prison, where 80% of its population will die inside the wire. Get mentally prepared. Sit back and listen as we cover these stories in detail in ways that you've never heard before from people that lived it, breathed it, and died with it. Bloody Angola. Warning, Bloody Angola is a podcast covering actual events and is intended for mature audiences. The subject matter discussed in no way reflects the personal opinions of the host or sponsors of this podcast. Thank you. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, the complete story of America's bloodiest prison and i'm jim chapman and i'm woody overton and boy are we excited to bring you this one team oh chase team members only for you only for you for your enjoyment yeah well or the james bond i was thinking of that song for your eyes only. oh yeah <laughs> so this for, for your ears only <laughs> that's right for your ears only and we are happy to bring it to you it's an episode that i personally wanted to do very very bad it is on the notorious serial killer sean vincent gillis and we're titling this gillis uncut we have an interesting perspective here in that woody was actually an officer during 
the Sean Vincent Gillis killing spree, I guess you could call it. Right. So we're going to have his perspective of what was going on with law enforcement during that time. It was a crazy ass time. Really was because there wasn't just one. There was two running around at the same time. I'm going to be more the perspective of a citizen that was really paying attention to the headlines and and kind of knew something was going on with all these killings that were happening in the Baton Rouge area so during that time. Y'all, I was going to throw this in there real quick, and I know most of y'all know this. Obviously, Sean Vincent Gillis is a serial killer, okay? And to be classified as a serial killer, it's a very specific definition. It means you have to kill two or more people that are unrelated crimes, Okay, um, meaning like I didn't come home and just kill my you know, five people in my family. You, you kill different people, different times, different places. Yeah. So, and Sean Vincent Gillis is a legit serial killer. One reason that I want to do this is because there were a lot of victims, eight confirmed murders committed by Sean Vincent Gillis, where those victims uh, did not really get due justice as far as, as, you know, not only who they were, but because there was another serial killer running around that got a lot more of the headlines, you know, their cases were kind of buried in the, I feel like those people deserve to be uh, recognized. Right. And we, we always say that about the victims. And I know Jim and I both are huge victims advocates. Unfortunately, most of Sean Vincent Gillis's uh, victims were high risk lifestyles, et cetera. And we'll get into all that at the same time. Naturally, Derek Todd Lee was killing more high profile victims that, that got garnered most of the attention. Yeah. The yeah. media attention, anyway. Were you a detective at the time? I was a detective at, at the time. On the serial killer part, y'all, they've been studied. Okay. I'm back in, like, when Ted Bundy came out, the FBI, which is the nation's leading law enforcement agency, who are not only responsible for enforcing the law, they are responsible for studying crime and why it happens, et cetera. So they develop profiles uh, uh, or. Now you've heard of the shows, Criminal Minds, et cetera, FBI profilers. Well, this is a real deal. And they they went into the prison systems, and they developed this, like, 5,000-question questionnaire that covered a person from the time they could remember as a child to the time they got incarcerated for their crimes. And they did it for all the crimes. Uh, but they did it for murder first. And um, they give would give them carte blanche. You can't get in trouble if you participate in the study and so they would fill it out and they take it back to Quantico and have their scientists study it. And they were able to break serial killers down into two types of groups. Um, uh, basically preferential and situational. I think Sean Vincent Gillis is more situational where I know Derek Todd Lee was preferential, but we'll get into that. But the profiles show whichever category you fell under, you had certain characteristics that you started out as a kid, and almost all of them did the same things until they graduated to being serial killers. But yeah, I would uh, agree a hundred percent. And serial killers, uh, when it when it comes to my, I guess, obsession with true crime, uh, one of 
if you were to specify that into one specific category, it would be serial killers, something that's always appealed to me. I was a big reader of Anne Rule books Mm -hmm. when I was a kid who was an amazing author who covered uh, serial killers in detail. She actually worked with Ted Bundy Mm -hmm. when they were in college, and I think that sparked her interest in it, and she made a career out of writing about Green River Killer, Ted Bundy, and Stranger Beside Me is probably one of the best books Mm -hmm. I've ever read. I met one of uh uh, Ted Bundy survivors um, at Crime Con. I can't remember wow. her name in one year, but she certainly had an interesting perspective. Oh. So on Sean Vincent Gillis, Jim doing what he does best, the historian, the researcher, he came up with stuff. Uh, he researched the shit out of it. So we're going to tell you about Sean Vincent Gillis' life and life and times and then the crimes, right? Right. Sean Vincent Gillis was born in 1962 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, to Norman and Yvonne Gillis. And Norman Gillis, now, he left the family soon after Sean was born. So it became a one-person family. His dad had major alcohol problems, pretty much left mom and and Sean at a very young uh, age. He was still a baby. And going back to the profile, y'all, that fits right into it. Most of the ones in his group had single-parent uh, household, alcohol, or drug abuse was a problem. He, and in high school, they described him as kind of a bright kid. He attended private schools throughout his upbringing. His mom actually worked at a news station in Baton Rouge. Didn't make a ton of money, but she loved her son, and she put him through private schools. Struggled to do that, but made it happen through his upbringing. And he maintained average grades. Classmates would describe him as somewhat odd. He was not what you would necessarily call a popular student. Would be kind of a track in his life. He was a guy that would disappear into the fold. Right. Just someone that could be in a crowd of people, and you never even recognize he was there. Right. It's a Star Trek freak. Right. Kind of nerdy. And and uh, just an average appearance you wouldn't think about him one way or another but with the glasses and just just like flower on the wall you know lost in the crowd very average joke maybe yes after he graduated from high school gillis got a job at a convenience store and when he wasn't at work he spent almost all of his time on on his computer looking at pornographic websites but his love of computers would play a key role in his pornography addiction later in life keep in mind folks the time in which this was the internet was just coming around before that if you wanted to consume pornography it was playboy magazine yeah you had to you had to wait in line in the convenience store um and get jugs or something off penthouse off the rack and and go up to the counter and (laughs) I'm not telling. Yeah. I'm not telling. Not that we've ever done that, <laughs> and act like you're old enough to buy it, right? So, uh, but yeah, no, no uh, free porn on the internet. It was the advent of the internet. It was just kind of coming out for a guy like Gillis who had what you would classify as a, an addiction to pornography. This was the holy grail, the internet, because you didn't have to go 
buy magazines. You right. could search websites and all this porn and, would just and pop now, up. If you remember when the internet started, you didn't have to pay to look at porn sites and stuff like that, and you could find anything. This before they started like really putting any kind of regulations on it or anything like that. I mean, you could find anything, including dead bodies. That's right. Pornographic dead bodies, necrophilia, if you will. How important is pornography in the profiling of a serial killer? Well, I remember a interview distinctly in which they interviewed Ted Bundy and they said, what do you hold as the key to what turned you into the serial killer you were? He didn't hesitate. And he said, pornography. Absolutely. You know why? Because they masturbate and they use the porn to masturbate and it's, it's the fantasy but certainly everybody masturbates right <laughs> but but for most people when masturbation can take care of it these certain individuals get in their brain what's the fantasy and they include rape and murder and stuff and they masturbate until the masturbation doesn't work anymore and they act out upon their fantasies but Sean Vincent Gillis in his early stages of the internet not only had the obsession with porn but he had an obsession with looking at porn of dead bodies and crime scenes crime scenes he was obsessed with it yes and I mean that's what he was jammed so you already know this fucker's a little twisted right there yeah I mean everything I, yeah, he's, sure, not, he's not looking at Pamela nine, Anderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ninety-nine percent of the people who look at porn don't search up dead bodies. And so there's your there's your early warning signs that something is wrong. Now, as we discussed, he was he was tight with his mother, almost to an obsession. Another part of the profile. In 1992, his mother Yvonne decided to take a new job in Atlanta. She asked Sean to come with her, but he did not want to go, so she agreed to continue to pay the mortgage on the house so he would have a place to live. At that point, he was 30 years old and was living alone for the first time in his life, which is a key because Anything he could actually act on now was the chance. Mama didn't live at home anymore, and he was depressed. You know, he was totally depressed that his mother left him, although she left him a house. Right. Basically gave it to him, so he had no responsibility. Right. So let's go back to the profile. You're 30 years old. You're living on your own for the first time. Um, you're mad at your mom because that obsession part, mm, okay, 30 years old people, that's an issue. But but you're alone. So now you don't have to hide. If it was magazines, still back in the day, you didn't have to hide your magazines under your bed or in your closet or whatever. Now he could just view porn anytime he wants to, walk around naked, masturbate, wherever. Right? Act out, all of those sorts of things. Um, he acted out so much, in fact, that – Neighbors that they interviewed after the, you know, obviously after he was caught, said they would see him late at night, sometimes in his yard, basically howling at the sky like a crazy person yeah. and cursing his mother for leaving. Because he's 30, 30 years old, y'all. 30 years old, y'all. This, this ain't a 14 year old. This next part really goes into the profile. All right. Almost every serial killer at some point either gets caught being a peeping Tom. Um, naturally they're masturbating getting more fuel when the pornography doesn't work anymore and Sean Vincent Gillis got caught by his neighbors peeping in the windows of a young woman who lived next door they saw his friends coming and going sometimes 
they could smell weed burning from his house on hot summer nights. So these were things that he was doing now that his mother was gone, and he's starting to act out maybe some of these things, like peeping, being a peeping Tom. Many of Gillis's neighbors quietly wished that he would move away. So they interviewed him after they were like, man, this they knew this guy's crazy. Didn't think he was a serial killer, but they knew he had a screw loose. Right. Uh, simply put, he gave them the creeps. Y'all, this is not a run-down neighborhood in Baton Rouge. This is in what they call the Garden District in Baton Rouge. And really nice homes and neighborhoods. And not to really say bad one way or another, but if you live in a trailer park and um, there's not a good lighting or whatever, and you're peeping in somebody's window, you may not ever get caught. The Garden District, yeah. People are paying attention. People are paying attention. And if you're you're walking by at nighttime, they're going to want to see where you're going. In 1994, Sean met Terry Lemoyne through a mutual friend, and they had similar hobbies, and they bonded quickly. Terry found Sean to be an underachiever, 30 years old, working in a convenience store. <laughs> not, not not throwing shade on the convenience store workers. I'm just talking about Sean Vincent. She found him to be an underachiever, but she also found that he was kind or thought he was kind and considerate and she helped him get a job at the same convenience store where she worked. So even Sean Vincent Gillis could find love. There was someone out there for him. Actually, Terry Lemoyne was also a big Star Trek fan. That was one of the things that they shared in common and would talk about. But Sean, much like his dad, was a heavy drinker. And Terry noticed that he drank a lot. She was also confused by his lack of interest in sex, a problem she eventually accepted and blamed on his addiction to pornography. So she knew that he was jacking off in front of a computer. She didn't realize it was dead bodies he was looking at. She thought it was, uh, you know, I don't know. Or that he was porn store. Peeping in windows. Or that he was peeping in windows. But believe it or not, they eventually were together 10 years before he got caught. Never had sex. Never had sex. And I think there's a reason for that, and I'll cover that later, my thoughts on that, and then get your expert right, thoughts right, on that. Right. What she didn't realize was that Sean Gillis's interest in porn changed and became an interest in rape, death, and dismemberment of women. I mean, you get that shit on the dark net now, but you can't, you can't. Google fucking a dead woman. Right? Yeah. And give away to you. Back then, you could have got 100 hits probably. It was no holds barred. Yeah. It was dialed up first of all. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> You've got mail. You've got mail. <laughs> Y'all remember that? When I came out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, somebody wants to talk to me. Check this out. <laughs> yeah. I remember those days. Sean is at a place where he has a girlfriend. All is right in the world. Right. Uh, platonic though relationship but no sex we'll get into later on one but that's really a cover for him yeah because this is what i'm supposed to do we're going to tell you about some victims here and, and now it's going to get hard to hear There's a lady named Ann Bryan. And look, our hearts go out to these victims, y'all, and their families. And I know there's people out there that love them uh, that are still living in the area today. So, gentlemen, I know our hearts go out to them first of all, right? Yes. And uh, so Miss Ann Bryan 
was 81 years old, and she was living at the St. James Place, which was an assisted living facility located across the street from the convenience store where Gillis worked. As she often would do, Anne left the door to her apartment unlocked before retiring to bed so that she did not have to get up to let the nurse in the next morning. The facility was not gated at the time, but has been ever since since the incident. So Gillis entered Ann's apartment around 3 a.m. At first, he was only going to rape her. Ann Bryan started screaming at Gillis, startled at the fight in this 81-year-old woman. Gillis slashes her throat in an attempt to quiet her. Once he got the scent and the sight of the blood, gushing out of her neck, he began stabbing her over and over. He stabbed her some 50 times, almost decapitating and disemboweling a small elderly woman. He seemed fixated on stabbing at her face, genitals, and breasts. Ann Bryan's murder shocked the Baton Rouge community. It would be another five years before Gillis would attack again. But once he started back, his list of victims grew quickly. Now, I'm going to tell you all about this. My great aunt was living in the same place, St. James, when this happened. I was 24 years old. And I had already done my Department of Corrections time. So I, I, just, I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, when I look at the Ann Bryan uh, murder specifically, there's some keys in there, and and one is Gillis. Now, a lot of these details Gillis gave himself in his confessions. Yeah. It's her fault, right, Woody? Right, 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 you, right. you you screamed. Right. I wasn't gonna slash your throat, but right. you screamed. It was your fault. That's typical of serial killers. They never accept responsibility for what what they do. But but also really important on this. This is his first victim. He graduated from Peep and Tom masturbation didn't do it anymore. Generally, the graduation goes to the next time they'll they'll break in and steal women's underwear and masturbate to whatever and um, until the fantasy doesn't work anymore. So, so at some point, the fantasy of rape uh, didn't work enough for him, so he was actually going to do it. Now, who to do it better than on what better victim for him to first his first rape then the 81-year-old lady he knows is living alone at nighttime. I'm sure he met her at the convenience store at some point. I'm yeah. sure he, he had his eyeballs on her. He was going in to rape her, but he's not, he didn't plan it out. He's, he's raping her. She screams. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Get the right car at Riker. It's the Riker Black Friday Savings Event. Get a $500 gas card with the purchase of any new vehicle only at RikerKia.com. Get the right car at Riker. We're dealing. And then he went fucking berserk. 
Yeah. Got the blood. And like they say, once a, you know, the dog bites you and it gets the taste of blood, they, they want more blood, right? Holy shit. What did he do? What kind of evil must have been contained inside him? I, I just came to rape you, you 81-year-old lady. I just came to rape you, but now I just mutilate you. Basically cut your head off. Yeah. And stabbed you in, in, in your genitals, in your breasts, in your face. Y'all, that's a lot of anger that I don't even think Sean Vincent Gillis knew he had in him at that point that he was capable of, but he did it. He did it over 50 times, 81-year-old Ann Brian. Our hearts go obviously go out to her family for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And But, but he went five years before he committed his next crime. That tells me he lived off that masturbation fantasy, that murder. Um, probably scared himself a, a little mm. bit at that point, but at some point, the masturbation to Miss Ann Bryan's murder, brutal murder and rape, doesn't do it anymore. The convenience store in which Sean Vincent Gillis worked at was right across the street from the St. James Place uh, retirement assisted living community. So, like, what he mentioned, he probably met her in the convenience store or something right across the street. It was located. He didn't. Let me tell you this. He didn't just go find door knobs and and because it could have been a dude, right? He had his eyeballs on her. I can tell you that from my professional opinion. He had his eyeballs on her at some point. He's like, mm, this is gonna be a good one. Yeah. So let me tell you about Catherine Ann Hall. Now, Catherine Ann Hall was thirty years old. She was a prostitute. Sean Vincent Gillis picked up a lot of prostitutes, right. something he did a lot. Now, flashback, folks, to he doesn't have sex with his uh, girlfriend, right. but he has sex with prostitutes. Right. So he picked this prostitute up in North Baton Rouge on January 4th of 1999. He brought her to a secluded spot on River Road in Baton Rouge, which is a road that the Mississippi River runs along. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, for those of you that are not and local, one side of the road is is a large levee separating the Mississippi River from basically all of Baton Rouge, and yes. then you have the road, and then most of it is uh, like cow pastures and stuff on the other side of the road, unless you get to the um, populated area. But you go past LSU, it's cow pastures and stuff like that, and then the levees on the other side. He finds a secluded spot there, and he uses what eventually became his moniker, something that uh, when they would find a murder and they were trying to connect them, this seemed to always come up, and that was a nylon zip tie. He slips that nylon zip tie. It was a large zip tie. Picture a almost the size of a rope you would rope cattle with. He slips this around her neck, pulls it tight, and begins choking her to control her. He didn't want to kill her at that point, but he wanted to control her with the zip tie well, he freaks out and stabs her 16 times before she died. To the zip tie thing. Yeah. Now let's go back. He's developing as a serial killer. He would, This makes him a serial killer, but he's developing as a killer. He knew the mistake he made with Ann Bryan. He was going to rape her, and she starts screaming out. So he slashes her throat, gets the blood all over him, et cetera. 
So I mean, he still had to make his escape and everything. So he knew the next time he did it, if he get that zip tie around their neck, especially with that long one thing, and that takes probably average of 90 seconds, but um, they're going to lose the, the ability to scream almost right away because they're going to be trying to get the thing off their neck, give them some release so they can breathe. So he knew. He, he planned this shit. I, I, For who who the fuck brings long zip ties and like that with him? He as part of his kill kit. He he could control Catherine by zipping it down, right? Now, let me tell you this. I don't give a fuck if you're a prostitute, preacher, business person, whatever. Nobody deserves to be murdered, all right? Prostitutes are generally considered, by law enforcement, high-risk lifestyles. They, you certainly are more likely to be murdered uh, or raped or whatever, but—, but doesn't give you a right to be because someone was a prostitute. Catherine Ann Hall has somebody that loved her. That's right. She, she had, somebody's she had daughter, a mother somewhere. Daughter, mother, uh, um, maybe a parent. I don't know. He has a rage about him. So in the first murder with Ann Bryan, he stabbed her over 50 times after 50 he slashed times. her throat. That is what I call a switch. He has a switch where he does the initial attempt and then he loses it. That switch the, the, goes off and he rages. I call it the demon comes out. The demon the comes demon out. That he doesn't show his girlfriend at home. He doesn't show the, his workers at uh, the people in the convenience store. The, the he, But that demon's in him and it's real. It's, it appears to show itself the second he gets the sight of blood. So he pulls that zip tie. He stabs her, continues to stab her 16 16 times before before she dies. So get this. Now the demon's taken over, the monster. He, post-mortem, stabs her another 21 times. And here's something you may not know. He then drives her dead body to a car wash on Gardier Lane in Baton Rouge, where he pulls her out of the car in broad night. If Okay, we live in the Baton Rouge area. We know where Gardier Lane is, and I know exactly where this car wash is. Let me set the scene here. It's three or four stalls. It's wide open, just like any exterior car wash you would ever see. He pulls the body out of the car, lays it on the ground in broad night, and cleans the vehicle out. While she's laying on the ground, he's not even in a hurry. All that blood, he's cleaning all that up, probably mad at himself because he raged out and got blood everywhere. But he doesn't even care. He lays her body outside the freaking car. So what's he do then? He puts her back in, probably had a bag or something that he later on. He drives to a populated subdivision in neighboring Ascension Parish where he leaves her body laying in the road right in front of a sign that says dead end posing her intentionally that's crazy so here's how sick you are now he's graduating he's developing like we told you he takes her to the car wash pulls her out wash off now y'all when we say car wash this is not like Benny's or something like that. this is not a drive-through these are the old brick walls with a metal roof three stalls you put your coins in now he takes her body out he's got to get quarters out put him in the thing and then get the wand out and hose her down, then put her back in the thing, drive her in the ascension pairs. Him driving her in the ascension pairs shows me he's graduating mentally. He's thought it out. He's like, hmm, if I drop her in another parish, it's going to be harder for law enforcement to figure out who did it and, and, and who she is and everything else. And 
Posner in front of a sign that read dead in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now he's almost thumbing his finger at anyone who's working this case in law enforcement. I'm going to make a funny. I'm going to put her in front of a sign that says dead end. And and everybody just thinks I'm a quiet convenience store clerk. Yeah. Who disappears right. into right. a crowd and that's right. And all of those sorts of things. So he posed her intentionally. Yeah. Then he goes on the next victim. And again, heart goes out to him. Hardy Schmidt. Was 50, 52 years old my age uh, in may of 1999 sean gillis was driving through an influential neighborhood in baton rouge when he came upon a jogger jogging in her subdivision gillis then began staking out the sub- subdivision every morning and three weeks later he finally saw the jogger again y'all why is he staking it out because he's masturbating he liked the way she looked uh, and and he wants to see her again when he sees her he hit Hardy Schmidt on May the 30th, 1999, with his car as she was jogging through Pollard Estates on her morning run. An avid runner, Hardy had participated in the Boston Marathon. According to his confession, Gillis overpowered her after he hit her with the car and wrapped a nylon zip tie around her neck. He put her body in the trunk and drove her to a break park where he raped her he then killed her and placed her in the trunk of his car for two days. Y'all, he even picked up his living girlfriend during these two days from work several times, and she commented about the smell in the car, which he blamed on hitting an animal on the way to pick her up. He then left her body in St. James Parish, near a bayou on Highway 61 where it was found two days after he dumped the body. I do believe this is the Bragg Park across the street, State Police Headquarters. He, again, he's thumbing it in, right? At zip tie, we're going back to it. He's graduated. He knows he's going to get control. He's, he had it in his mind. He brought the zip tie. She comes running through today. I'm going to get her ass. But she's fit. Boston Marathon runner. So, he, I mean, she probably would have whipped his ass. And, and so he hits her with a car drives around with her for two days and, and tells his girlfriend, oh, yeah, what's the smell, baby? Oh, I hit, I hit an animal. And again, he drops her in another parish, St. James, which is even further away, which shows he's graduated. Exactly what I was about to he, say. Hey, Sean Vincent Gillis was not a dumbass. He Third didn't, parish. He didn't, he didn't plan his shit out way, way ahead of time. Now, this, this time he saw the victim, but he didn't know he was going to see her that day. It's not like Ann Bryan where he, um, he, you know, he fixated on, but he was just going to rape her. This one, he saw her and he was like, oh, shit, that, that's a good potential victim. But he didn't know he was going to see her again. And he did it. Drops her in St. James Parish. And if you chase team member, you're not from here. Holy shit, that's even further. That's towards Laplace, right? I mean, it's, right. it's, a, it's past Ascension Parish. Law enforcement from St. James Parish communicating with Baton Rouge, uh, you know, communicating with Ascension. What he's doing is he's trying to make it as hard as possible for these agencies to tie these things together. And I want to offer a few thoughts on this because I can distinctly remember this, Woody, when this happened. I can remember reading the newspaper about this lady. And here's where I think uh, Sean Vincent Gillis was fucking up. 
So his first victim was Ann Bryan. Ann Bryan caused a lot of uproar due to her age, right. and 81-year-old woman, and, and the horridness of yeah, the crime. Bad. So it freaked him out, most likely, and he stopped for five years. Mm-hmm. Well, then he goes and he picks up a, a, you know, a prostitute, kills Catherine Ann Hall, and there's nothing. It's really, I don't want to say it was no big deal, Every, but... A prostitute getting killed versus his next victim, which was Hardy Schmidt, are two completely different things. Hardy Schmidt was in a, you know, lived in an affluent subdivision, had money. She was an athlete. She had many, many friends and family who right. loved her, right. and it created an uproar and a media it's, frenzy. It's, and again, it's unfortunate that, um, but it, I've been a victim of myself uh, working murders and homicides. Uh, you want to solve them all, but if you have um, high risk victim like Catherine Ann Hall, and then at the same day you get it, you get another high profile case or an ape and a cute little murder comes across your desk. I mean, you're going to work. I shouldn't even say, but it's the truth. You're going to work what we garners the most attention. Yeah. And now, when he did Hardy Schmidt, holy shit! Uh, um, Tons right. of media yeah. attention. Right. I was locked into it, and look, y'all, now. There are murders going on in Baton Rouge of women a lot because there's a whole nother serial killer exactly. running around, but nobody does that yet. Right. There's just bodies popping right. up in right. 1999 everywhere you looked. Okay, so that was six months after he killed Catherine Hall. So now the time frame's getting close. As investigators, when y'all are looking at this stuff, do y'all pay attention to the time frames and these dates? You, you do, but let me let me kick it back for a minute. So like Catherine Ann Hall and Ann Bryan being five years before, Catherine Ann Hall being dumped in, in another parish, in Ascension Parish, she probably, they fingerprinted her and she's a known prostitute, et cetera. And the, um, they may have reached out to Baton Rouge, but no, they're going to talk to people in the area where she was dumped and no witnesses, no whatever. And shit. They might not even contact the Baton Rouge, to be honest with you. I'm sure they had to notify family or whatever, but are they going to go down Plank Road and or and in, in, in interview everybody to see who picked her up? Probably not. Since Paris got other shit to do. I mean, yeah. that's just the way it works. And yeah. it's, it's unfortunate. Harry Smith, we could wheel gets the grease, baby. Never uh, do. Uh, and and I, there, to me, there's no difference in the victims, but certainly different victims are going to garner different amounts amounts of attention the time frame not only the closer it gets together for law enforcement but it goes back to the news media they're they're like oh we got these bodies popping up but like you said there were other bodies turning up and most of them were influential women who had families that cared about them etc and this is all going on at the same time so now you got a gumbo of dead bodies from different classes and it's a shit show Total shit show. Many different agencies involved because he's dumping in them in different parishes in six months. It shows his, his intelligence level. He's graduating um, to, to different levels in his murders, also in the frequency. But he's smart enough to know the farther away I dump him, the better it's going to be for me. But riding around with the body two days, two days. dead in the trunk, that's, I guarantee he masturbated over that body. He's getting off on it because now, for the first time in his life, he's smarter than everybody else, including yes. the cops. So he's getting it. The longer he could ride, if he could ride away riding till she was mummified in his car, he'd have never got rid of her because as long as she's in there, hey, 
I'm a genius, right? That's they right. Can't catch me. Six months in between Katharine Hall and Hardy Schmidt's murder, and six months later, he strikes again. Joyce Williams was last seen on November 12, 1999. Her body was found behind a levee on River Road in Baton Rouge on January 22nd of 2000. According to his confession, Gillis picked her up on Highway 19 in Scotlandville. He rode around for a while, singing along with songs on the radio. He brought her to Port Allen and killed her with a nylon zip tie before bringing her to his home where he dismembered her and delved into cannibalism. He later put her body parts in garbage bags and a Xerox box and brought her to Eberville Parish where he disposed of her remains. This is so crazy, y'all. So remember, he killed Hardy Smith. This big uproar, right? So he goes back to what? A higher respect on Scotlandville, y'all. It's, it's, a, it's a tough neighborhood just north of Baton Rouge. It's, he gets Joyce Williams. On, on these prostitute victims, why do you think a lot of serial killers choose prostitutes? No one cares about them. No, no family not, or not only that, but family. More important, check this out. Check this out. More important, this motherfucker couldn't get anybody else to talk to him. He, he gets Joyce Williams in his car because she's thinking she's going to get some money. And he, um, say he's riding around with her singing songs, yeah. right? He can't get anybody else to get in the fucking car. He couldn't get Hardy Smith in his car. He had to run her over. Yeah. Right? So he gets Joyce Williams in. Oh, baby, come on. Uh, you working tonight? How much? Well, let's take a ride. But going back to it, zip tie, boom, did it again. Y'all, he drove across the bridge. That's West Baton Ridge Parish, right? So he's getting out of the area and, and killed her with the zip tie. But bringing her house, Jim, he, bring, he brings her home, y'all, and literally cuts her up. He dismembers her. There's a reason why we called this uncut. Right. And it's, number one, because we're giving you all the gory details. But right. number two, he started enjoying dismembering his victims. He brings her home to his house to do it. He also delved in cannibalism. He was quoted as saying he ate her nipples. That's crazy ate her nipples he later after he's done dismembering her put her body parts in garbage bags and then he puts that in a nice xerox box and brings her to yet another parish woody everville parish which is even further across the river y'all so he's gone ascension parish the first one which is neighboring to uh, east baton ridge then he goes to saint james Uh, then he goes to Iberville. So he's spreading it out. Now, again, there's another killer. Or the cops didn't know it was another killer at the time. But bodies are popping up in Iberville Parish. The, the, the other killer was taking the women and dumping them in the water. And you better believe he knew there was oh, another one out there. He's smart. Who is this guy? Uh, Why uh, is this guy taking my and, headlines? And, I didn't kill her. Yeah, not only that, he, he's thinking... I dump it out in every parish. They can think it's the same guy. Yeah. They're not on my trail. I can ride around dead bodies in my car. I can take my time at home and eat them. It's crazy. It just goes to show that he's totally, totally developing, graduating. So, y'all, we're going to go ahead and look. When me and Woody started this, we did not realize until 30 seconds ago that right. this was going to be a, a two-part series. Right. 
Uh, what's happening right now is we're freestyling and our minds are working and we're just flowing. And when you do that, things come to your mind that you just can't say in an hour. If we want to give these people the due justice they deserve. They're not going to rush because uh, these are victims. They were real live human beings. They're not just statistics. And he, what Jim is saying, I, we, okay. So Jim did all the research and, 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 we're sitting down. We ne- we don't discuss these cases before we talk. We flow. That's how yeah. and I think what makes us sound so good on bloody and goal and everything. But if we rushed this, it would be doing a disservice to to these family members, uh, to these deceased. Sean Vincent Gillis, fuck him. But what we won't make you do is wait another month or something, right, Jim? Yeah. We've been doing it in like two weeks or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a week or two, we'll release the second part. I would say probably look for it the first week in. Yeah, the first week of October. October. Right. So apologize about that, but I promise you, you will thank us at the end for doing, y'all, I can, I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, at least Six more in-depth pages. That's what I was freestyling on it. But this story needs to be told. We're not going to rush it. Um, you're already Chase team members, and we appreciate you. Love and appreciate each and every one of you. Yeah, we really do. Thank you for being Chase team members. And we'll be back uh, shortly with that second uh, part of Gillis Uncut. Gillis Uncut, baby. And I'm Woody Overton. And I'm Jim Chapman. We're the host of Bloody Angola, the complete story of America's bloodiest prison. A podcast 142 years in the making. Peace. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.